Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So this week on Quitters, we have our first athlete, Daniel Carcillo. He is so impressive. What did you think, Chad? I mean, he's going through something and we mm-hmm. are catching him in the middle of that thing, which is one of the most intense things you can go through, which is he's trying to get his brain back. He's trying to get his brain yeah. back. And he, I mean, this guy won the Stanley Cup. He was a fighter. Like literally that was his job on the ice as an ice hockey player was to go in there and just fucking tear it up and get in fights. And that's how you end up with traumatic brain injuries. And now he's talking about healing himself from these traumatic brain injuries with psilocybin. Mm-hmm. Which which is uh, the, the chemical that comes from what we call magic mushrooms, right? And in one of its distilled forms, he, I what I found interesting was that he is like, he comes off as a tough guy. Like he's intense. You know, he, he has an intense gaze. He has an intense way of, mm-hmm. of sharing him, uh, what he's thinking, what he's feeling, but also he's been through so much. I feel like he's been further hardened beyond hockey and he is thoughtfully trying to like repair himself. He shared with us that he lost a friend, someone very mm-hmm. close to him who he played with because yeah. of some of these brain injuries caused by hockey and when we hear stories about like football players and hockey players who are going through brain trauma because of the sports they play, I think it's easy to forget that these are like actual people. And he humanizes that with his story. Yeah. The plight of of athletes with traumatic brain injury is real. And he is started a, a foundation, a business to try to get more psilocybin therapy to these people and to everyone because he has seen such a major turnaround in his own mental health and his engagement with the world, with his family. It was really exciting to talk to this tough athlete and see the beauty of this journey for him. And I'm yeah. noticing also that people are becoming more open to mind-altering drugs I'm just, I'm curious about where we're going with this. Daniel does a good job of pointing this out, which is like, these are not things to just mess around with, like playfully without knowing what you're doing or without knowing or or having someone there who knows what they're doing. So I feel like because we don't have like a studio behind us or anything like that, who would be like, make sure you guys put a regulatory stamp on this episode. (laughs) We have to say like, this is not shit to like play around with. Yeah, this is serious, serious medicine. Just because it comes from plants doesn't mean that it isn't um, really, really mind altering and can change your brain chemistry for the better, but should not be done lightly. So with that, enjoy Daniel Carcillo.
saw your stuff. We saw all about you last year. I've been deeply obsessed. I've gone down a couple of rabbit holes with you, and I just wanted to start <laughs> with one quick thing. Me <laughs> playing ice hockey. And uh, oh, there I my am. Gosh. There it is. There, there it is. The winning picture. Uh, you look like a centerman. Centerman. I, I was, I was you? not an enforcer, Daniel. Wait, I which think it's one safe are to you, say. Julie? I'm this dopey-looking girl. Uh, uh, the oh, one, you're tall. Yeah, well, you got some height. To, these two are were very short. <laughs> you know, I'm five five and a half. Uh, those girls were rather petite. But that was my big experience of ice hockey. Thought I'd open with a where we intersect. And that's about it. <laughs> it's beautiful. You're not uh, you're not Canadian, are you? I am not Canadian. I was just wondering how you got into hockey. I went to boarding school and the, okay. in the east on the east coast, and uh, it just they had a nice rink. So I was like, all right, I'll try. But girls don't. We don't really do a lot of contact sports. Right. I mean, boys even like okay. Chad played basketball. Girls basketball gets elbowy, but boys basketball gets very. <laughs> It get it, all it's boys vicious. sports get more what? How would you say it? Just more aggressive, more more rough. Yeah, rough. yeah, rough. And like, yeah, with hockey, it's uh, like with the girls, it's more so like rubbing each other out rather than like actually right. with the boys. And the way that I grew up playing hockey, it's take somebody's will to play away. And the Ooh. way that you do that is by punishing your opponent, right? That is, so, a, that is a directive yeah. to you as a, as a child? I started skating at three years old. So pretty much as soon as you can walk, uh, you put skates on in Canada. So hockey, as you know, right? Like you're going to get hit with the puck. You're going to get a stick to the cage, to the back of the leg. We were taught you have to take that opponent's will to play away. And it's very unique in the sense of uh, basketball, yes, but you don't lean quite as hard on people, but it's a seven-game series. So when you yeah. get to that final after the regular season and you 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 see the same guys for seven games, you have to lean on them or at least like, you know, make them hesitate and and test their will. How far will you go? So- I was talking about that this with friends earlier, because all my boys are basketball guys. Yeah. And I was wondering, I've always wondered this about, about hockey. Do they actually teach you how to fight as a part of the training for the sport? So I moved away from home at 15 years old uh, to go uh, basically to this developmental league where you're playing from 15 to 21-year-olds and you get scouted. You know, like after practices and stuff, when you're growing up, you grab a guy's jersey, you, you try to figure out this leverage. Fighting on skates is obviously difficult, but it was definitely a part of it. Yeah, it was a part of it. And, you know, but it really accelerated when I was... I call it, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, where guys would spend some time after practice. Yeah, juking, juking it out, not punching each other full bore in the face, but definitely kind of play fighting, if you will. If people don't know Daniel is, he was NHL player, started in Canada, the OHL league, is that correct? And yeah, yep. played in the NHL for, gosh, over 10 years. Yeah, and, yeah just, um, just under. Went to this Stanley Cup finals four times on three different teams. Yep. Um, and and can do um all the tough guy stuff while skating. So and that's that's what <laughs> that's what we're getting into right now. And that's the question that Chad just asked is they teach you to fight. And I, that's kind of my question too, is is being an enforcer, which is basically what you became, a mm-hmm. self-selecting position, or is it kind of really mm. encouraged in certain kids? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I was always drawn to the game 
because of the emotional aspect of it. And, and I was attracted to the fact that, well, if, when I come to the rink, it's different rules than in the real world. And I could actually hit somebody with, uh, when they're touching a puck. So it's a great anger management tool. <laughs> I fought 164 times in the NHL. I just viewed it as something else that I can do. So I can skate, I can hit, I can pass, I can score. And then I'm a good teammate in the sense that if anybody tries to mess with me or any of our other guys who don't know how to fight, I'll step in and, and try to uh, basically deter that by, I was pretty unpredictable. Like guys didn't know if I'd do some off the wall things with like my stick or, and I was, I was good at fighting. I only fought three times in the junior league. So I got drafted as like a, a scorer, a skater, a hitter. Ah, but 164 just, times in the uh-huh. NHL. Does someone yeah. keep that stat somewhere? Like, is there somewhere yeah. on your like, you, like fights you've had? So the only reason I know that is because I filed a, a lawsuit against the NHL, basically mm-hmm. saying similar to the NFL where they, where they held back information from us mm-hmm. uh, about the dangers of concussion. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my lawyer, I was like kind of interested to know the number. Um, and yeah, 100, 164. I didn't realize it was so much. Before we get too deep down that road, I did want to just ask a follow-up on the training you got as a kid. Mm. Like, did the sport itself, the aggressive nature of it, the fighting, did it tap into anything about you that was naturally aggressive? Mm. Or do you feel like it was all, do you feel like you were taught how to be aggressive, how to fight, how, like, how to want that kind of contact with someone else. So when you look in another person's eyes and you stand across from them and you, and you know that you're about to fight them, you see right away if that person wants to or if they don't. I wow. always said that I'd rather fight a guy that's 6'10 and doesn't want to fight than a guy that's my size and does want to fight because I would go to the grave with it. Right. So there's something from a very young age that I, I was drawn to it. I'm a very sensitive person. I was a very sensitive kid. I grew up, I think like most of us on this call, where it was a a different age where you, you got hit as a child and these sorts of things, if you did things wrong and that really affected me. So, and I, I mean, I love my parents and they made me into everything I am today and eventually into the things that I'm sure we'll talk about later. So I don't regret it, but I was definitely a different type of kid. When mm-hmm. you saw me on the ice, my nickname mm-hmm. was Carbomb, and you can <laughs> see I'm very calm <laughs> off the ice. Um, but yeah, I was definitely attracted to the physicality of it. You said it was a great anger management tool. Mm-hmm. So was there anger going in, anger off the ice that only came out on the ice? Yeah, most definitely. Uh, I think that there was just a lot of like confusion. Yeah, there was a lot of frustration, sadness that that morphed into anger. And then here's this tool that was completely legal. And if you wanted to touch that puck, I was able to impose my will. Does the sport then, by its nature, does it naturally weed out anybody who is not available for that level of physicality? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really? So like, Big the, the, oh, yeah. Okay. But what about like in football, you've got, you've got your scrappers and your brawlers and, and your, 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 the guys who are going to tackle, but everybody basically tries to keep their hands off the quarterback and, and keep him yeah. pristine. Is there, is there a position that they try to protect in ice hockey? Goalies or okay. people like Patrick Kane or Jonathan Taves or, or McDavid or your superstars. Right. Mm-hmm. So you would need guys like me that 
if anybody went after them, number one, like I'm not going to go after their the fourth line or the other enforcer. Say if they go after Patrick Kane, try to instigate right. him, get him off. Well, then I'm going to go after your superstar. There's an unwritten rule, right? Where, well, I'm not going to do it because I know that Dan's on that team. And I know that if I mess around, I'm going to, I'm going to have to answer for it. And then he might come after one of our best guys. This question is like, it takes you off the ice, but do those dynamics carry over when you guys are just like out, like when you're out at a bar or something like that, do the same guys get protected and the same guys are aggressive or like, what is it like when y'all are out? I mean, like. So I went through a lot of like bullying as a kid and, and huh. in junior too, right? So I always had this thing where like, all right, there's injustice here. I know this guy doesn't want to fight, so I'm going to do it for him because I like him. So like that would carry over sometimes, but there were never really like, you're not picking fights in the bar. If anything, you're trying to avoid all that stuff and not, not get seen. You know, I just think you have to, you know, t- just take care of, of certain people and, and certain guys and guys have different types of personalities. You know, if there was ever any type of injustice, I was I was okay with, you know, stepping up. So you weren't out there to start a fight. Sometimes, you know. Uh, <laughs> I well, like twinkle in your eye. Yeah, because yeah. like, how do you change the energy of a game? Mm-hmm. How do you right? change the momentum of a game? So right? if we were getting like pounded by like two or three goals and it was early right? in a game, I might go out there on a shift and just go heat-seeking missile type of just hit everything in my path and try to try to get them off their game. If they're thinking of me, they're not thinking of Kane and Taves and the guys that can right. actually get us back into the game and some moments where you try to do anything in your power to get a fight or get a hit to change the momentum of a game. And we know you have a, a complex relationship with hockey and the NHL altogether. But on the fun side of that, like on the glorious side of that, people, ce- I mean, I know people celebrate you for your... Uh, your your violence, for your aggression, for your unpredictability. Like, what does that do to your brain when people are loving you because they know you'll whoop somebody's ass? Like, what did that, I don't know. How did that change how you saw yourself? <laughs> well, it's like MMA, right? So like, I took my kid and there there is a complex relationship, but I am much more at peace with it now. Like, I, I'm very grateful for everything that I went through because mm. that's who I am today sitting in front of you guys. But like, I took my boy who's seven to a Florida Panthers game and I was watching on the, and I haven't done this. And I'm like, oh man, I see it. Like, I get it now. I, I get the appeal. Like, this is like MMA on skates. There's no right. out of bounds and you know, the only time other than scoring a goal when everybody stands up is when there's a fight. So, yeah. and we're, yeah. we're animals, you know, we really are. Like there's, <laughs> there's a, there's an attraction to MMA for a very specific reason, you know? Yeah. And Oh, I went down a YouTube rabbit hole watching some of your fights <laughs> and then oh, and I think uh, it started feeding me, you know, you start to get the YouTube because it clicks into the next video and I was brushing my teeth and before I even knew what I was watching, I think maybe it was your friend Steve Montador, it mm. could have been him, but uh, or two other people getting knocked out on the yeah. next, and, and and the guy's comment was the ref came over and asked me if I wanted the fight to stop, mm-hmm. or he wanted the ref to get involved. Can you for for the neophytes here explain why <laughs> a ref would not get involved in a fight on on the ice with two guys just just cold cocking each other? Part of the game. You know, there's a specific penalty for it. And 
there's a very big like respect level. To your point, if there was other guys from the other team when we just fought that night, mm-hmm. we'd be best friends. Like we and I was usually friends with the other guys that did my job. But the refs are not there to stop it because they know the fans want to see it. And what they're to do is is get in if somebody falls or if somebody's like getting beat really bad because this is the only sport we have to remember where I can hit you with a bare knuckle. So there's no there's no wraps on my hands. There's so like I mean a Bruce Lee punch can do a lot of damage from an inch away. So they're just there to make sure. And the refs are not supposed to break that up. That is literally until somebody goes down Mm -hmm. or is quote unquote or we get tired. Yeah, is that up to the player to signal? Well, no, they just know because usually it's like a minute of just like, ah. yeah, yeah, so yeah. So it's not even like, you know, it's so much different than anything else you've ever seen because UFC and boxing, it's very calculated and there mm-hmm. is calculation in this. But for the most part, you get to a hockey fight and, and you gas out around like 60 seconds because yeah. you have to remember you're also probably at the end of a shift. Right. So yeah. it's, um, yeah, it's a different beast for sure. But yeah, they're there to just uh, make sure nobody's. Hand gets stepped on and and Uh. they don't get beat real bad. I don't mean this like in a judgmental way, but then when you look at other sports and other pro sports Mm -hmm. where, you know, in basketball, like guys flop. If somebody, you know, pushes someone else, they can get kicked out. (laughs) Do you look at those other sports as soft or do you just think they're just different sports? Ah, just different sports. There's guys that flop in hockey. You know, like I was, I was one of those guys that like, I took a lot of penalties, but one of my shticks when I went to into contract negotiations is that I drew 80% more than I took. Uh-huh. So like, if I can put my team on the power play, that's an advantage to having me on your team. Hmm. And right. sometimes I would, I would flop, but I mean, listen, I'm, I'm sure basketball's got its own things, right? Where like, it's, that's a tough sport. It used yeah. to be a lot tougher, but you know, the world that we're living in now, this day and age where it's like things are, there's more information and things are getting, I don't want to say like softer, uh, but just different, you know? Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, it's it's different now. Well, you know, Daniel, anybody who knows you or has read anything about you knows that the the quit we're heading towards is is that you quit hockey. I know that you you struggle with pain, addiction Mm -hmm. to pain medication. Opioids mm-hmm. were they originally mm-hmm. prescribed for your for your injuries or were they always yeah. off label? Yeah, I had two surgeries back to back. I had a um a, a I ripped my abdomen off of Ooh. my pelvis. What? Uh, yeah, so I had that stapled back, and then ten days later, they decided to fly me to Nashville and do an orthoscopic hip surgery on the same side uh, to repair these things, and then I got prescribed around one hundred and twenty pure hydrocodone. No. Um, uh-huh. What year is this? 2008. So they decided, hey, if he's off the ice, let's just let's just staple him together, slap as much surgery and at him as we can because we want him back on the ice when we can get him on the ice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Philadelphia was weird because they would have like tons of surgeries. Uh, and yeah. then you start looking at it and you're like, all right, well, one of the sponsors is the medical system that I'm going to do the surgery <laughs> oh, in. Wow. And it's like, you wow. know, but you don't see that you don't see it when you're in, right? You see it when you get out. So there's a huge conflict of interest there. Hockey has um, has made me into the person I am. When I moved away for junior hockey, 12 of us were rookies and it's very cult-like. There's a lot of initiation stuff. So we went through like sexual, physical, 
verbal abuse, coaches, mm. teammates. Like this it was is the OHL. Pretty, yeah, yeah, it was pretty hellish. Uh, we have a we have a class action lawsuit in Canada right now that I'm uh, one of the sponsors of because it continues to happen. So we just have to put a stop to it. Did you get a lot of backlash? You turned your Twitter account into basically an open like call out for abuse yeah. in the OHL. Yeah, there was a ton of hate. There still is, but I don't I don't pay that any mind. Throughout my whole career and my whole life, I've been telling people you're doing it the wrong way, do it this way, or hating on my game. Right, my job was to go into Boston and and have as many tweets after a game telling me to go F myself, this and that. And I'm like, all right, I, I probably played pretty good. So I was like, I'm used to it. You know, um, what's great is that there was several hundred guys, grown men in their like between 40 and 60 years old that came forward with abuse mm-hmm. stories that <gasps> said, I haven't said this in, it's been governing my whole life. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. and now you've given me the opportunity to talk about it. They get hate too. Because in hockey, what's said in the room stays in the room. That's another thing that you learn at three and four years old. Right. You don't tell your mom. Mm. You don't tell your dad. You don't tell your buddy. What's said in this room stays in this room. So what does that breed, right? It's very much like a like like a, a soldier cult-like as- yeah, atmosphere. Yeah, absolutely. You've broken that code, right? Yeah, like you, yeah, yeah. So for our listeners, because I do think a lot of folks, just like me and Julie to some extent, are going to be really fairly new to this conversation, specifically with hockey. Can you paint the picture just a little bit? You know, I'm not trying to be grotesque here, but just like, what kind of abuse are we talking about? Because I think when people hear about kids in sports getting abused, they don't really see it. They don't really understand. Well, let me frame the dynamic of of my mindset and then the power that a coach wields over a minor. So Mm. I was uh, 17 going into my draft season in the NHL where if that coach made one phone call to one scout, hockey's such a small world, saying that I was uncoachable or that I'm talking mm-hmm. back and I'm not accepting the abuse that's being, or I'm not accepting of, of what he's telling me to do, I'd be done. So let's start there with, with how much power the coach, the GM, and really your teammates wield over you because you want to be a good little boy. You want to get, you're so close. I'm so close to realizing my dream. So from that context, you know, you move away and you, you, you move into another person's house, a billet family, uh, and you go to the rink every day. Things that we had to deal with that I knew weren't normal. I knew that there was hazing, right? Like mm-hmm. I got hazed the year before in, in a lower league, and, but it was innocent. It was uh, always carrying the bags for other guys. Mm-hmm, onto, mm-hmm. You sit at the front of the bus, like mm-hmm. innocent stuff. When I got there, we were getting paddled naked in the room, like forced to strip in front of our stall every mm-hmm. day. So not Whoa. one day. And then there's things that are pretty well known, like it's called a hot box. Uh, so, you know, the Greyhound buses, how small yeah. those bathrooms are. Uh, so again, the one common theme is they'd make us strip naked and they would tie our clothes in a ball. And then they would throw the clothes into the washroom with like six or seven guys stuffed in there. They'd be throwing like chew spit at us and um, you'd have to untie your clothes and then and then put them on and you can come out. Oh, and geez. so, yeah, you'd, well. you'd have to bob for apples in coolers of, 
of piss. So I don't know oh, if I'm getting too graphic. No, nah, you're. This is it. <laughs> oh my god. But like, with what? I mean, the pre- and the pretense is like this is gonna make you what mentally tough. Like this yeah. is gonna make you. Uh, no, the pretext, and this is why I knew oh. this is not right. Like, <laughs> you're gonna be able to do it to the guy next year. And I'm like, why would I ever do this to a fucking kid? So you never turned that, around and passed it on? No, 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 no. Verbal mm. abuse? Absolutely. For sure. <laughs> right, uh, but like, uh, you I, for were not sure, going like, to make them bob for apples in your piss. No, no, I never, I never laid a hand on anybody. I never did any of that grotesque type of stuff. No, no, I tried oh. to stop that cycle. Mainly, I had a roommate that was like, you know, a really good kid. And, and I'm like, dude, I'm not going to let this kid go through that. Like, what's right. the point? You were teammates. We're supposed to like, right. because what right. happened that year was, you know, all these veterans, it's their last year and they need to win, right? right. Yeah. We were a really good team. And so they were all crying in the room when we were losing in the playoffs to an eighth place team. Oh, We all just, we got together the night before, all of us rookies. And we we're like, hey man, I knew that I was going to under 18s if we lost in the first round. Right. A bunch of us did. So we're like, fuck you guys. You made you made us quit. So enjoy enjoy your last game. You know, right. and we lost in the first round, and, uh, and we went on and did other things. You took that uh. hazing, and you took that yeah. uh, that uncomfortable that feeling of I don't want to pass this on, uh, like behind closed doors. I'm not into this secret society of bullshit. But you did step on the ice and think my job is to make the other player lose the will to play. Did you channel? Or maybe you don't know if you channeled some of that anger and frustration about feeling oh, the yeah. impotent rage in the locker room onto the ice. Supercharged me, for sure. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, I was going instead of 20 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour into these guys to try to just transfer it. I didn't fight necessarily, but I would crush kids. Like, crush You think them. that was part of, uh, the, part of what was going on with the hazing? Mm. Was to get you fired yeah. up? Oh. Yeah. No, I don't. No, I just think it's a rite of passage. I honestly think, like, Similar to like what my parents couldn't do. Stop the cycle. You know you don't like getting hit. I have three kids. I mm. could never imagine hitting them. I just, um, because, I mean, we're there to like protect them, to lead them. I just, that, that didn't work for me. And so, I don't know, like what? I just never understood why they were doing the things that they were doing to us, but I was also going to shut up because of that power dynamic that I just told you guys about. And I knew that I was a good player. And like, just like in business, I'm not going to fucking let personalities get in the way of my success. If I have to deal with certain people a certain way by being passive, I will, because I'm not going to let them ruin the mission. And the mission was always, I'm going to move on from this and succeed. What does that mean? You're going to be passive when you need Uh, to be? So that means accepting the abuse that's necessary to not blow up the whole mission. So like when I watched my coach whip a guy that was tied naked to a table with a belt. Shit. Yeah. Like I'm like. Your coach. uh An adult. How old? What's the age of the kid on the table? He was my age. He's a minor. 17. Shit. Okay. Yep. Sorry. Yep. And this, this coach was, he's still coaching by the way. You know, uh, which is crazy because hockey protects their own. Um, So, like, from Mm -hmm. that sense and from the sense of me doing the things necessary, taking the abuse, um, I did it. You know, eventually it did come to a head. So there was, like, 10 games left in the season where they stuffed us in this this hot box. And 
there was a guy that was having like hyperventilating and I came out swinging and, mm. uh, and that was, that was pretty much it. And we were getting close to playoffs. So like, yeah, maybe we can ease up, but yeah, like I just, you take it right. Uh, and you take abuse to a certain level because you know, you're so close and you don't want to mess this bigger picture up where I'm never going to have to see these guys ever again after this year. Right. So it's like, okay, I could quantify it. But what's the tipping point then? Yeah. Well, the tipping point was when that kid was hyperventilating and I was like, fuck this, man. Like, and then you fight. Like, what do you usually, what happens with a bully usually? Right. Like, right. You, you start fucking swinging and, and they back <laughs> down. And then the coach and everybody, like, again, we were a really good team. So I understood all these intricacies. Like, okay. They're not just going to kick me off because I was a fucking 30 goal scorer. I was one of the best players on the team. I'm about to get drafted. They can't do shit to me now. I was in a position that was much different than say 10 games into the season. Right. Yeah. So I kind of just quantify. I just, I was done. I was broken, but you know, hockey helped in a sense and it hurt because I still had this Avenue where I can go hit people and then be okay for a little while and then take some more abuse and then go hit other people and then come back. So it was, uh, yeah, a lot. There's a lot, a lot going on in the psychology of that that young boy for sure. When it started like wrecking your body too, which you know, I imagine it probably was having some trauma on your body the whole way through from childhood. I got I got pretty lucky where I didn't get hurt uh, until I got to the NHL, and then as a pro, it started to do stuff to your body because yeah, it's just well, such an intensity. I was drinking heavily. Um, and I thought, well, like I had a bad game, so I'm going to drink. I had a, and I wasn't, I guess you could say like, I was a really good operating. I wouldn't say like alcoholic, but I guess you could, you could call it that. Like, I just like, I like to party, you know, and I like to like numb out. Right. That's why, uh, Julie, when you mentioned the opiates, when I first took it, it wasn't just because of the pain from the injury. It was the emotional pain. I was like, yeah. oh my gosh, mm. this just took everything away. I'm not even thinking about any of that. So it was definitely like a romantic type of hook to it, for sure. Not just because of the pain. So how did you get to the point? Because you had some big quits. You quit drugs and alcohol, I think. I know you quit drugs. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you quit drinking. Quit, um, and that was, that was um, and then you also you quit playing in hockey because you're worried about what it was doing to your brain drugs and alcohol quit came first is that right yeah so to chad's point it was it was after i got drafted uh so i was drafted in high school i started playing pro as soon as i graduated high school at 19 moved away to the states been here pretty much ever since and um so from 19 to 25 uh, two horizontal tears in both ankles. I tore my MCL six times on my right knee. No oh. PCL on my right knee. I did an ACL reconstructive surgery on my left. I done my MCL five times. I had the orthoscopic hip surgery. I had my pelvis um, or my abdomen stapled back to my pelvis. I have no labrum in my left shoulder. Uh, I had seven concussions, numerous neck tears. So like everything just started breaking down, <laughs> and I was like, oh man, I need to do something. And then thank gosh, I had, I was introduced to those two surgeries and then I got the opiates because that like accelerated my need to make a decision hmm. to stop uh, hmm. or it was all going to be over at 25. Very so see, the introduction of opioids into your, into your lifestyle made, brought you to a bottom faster. Did you play on opiates? Yeah. Oh yeah. For how long? Yeah. Two years. Like not too long. It was a pretty quick come down, you know, so like, what made in you the realize- sense that I just... 
well, I was losing weight. I kept getting hurt. They work until they don't work. When I was taking the opiates, I would literally, we would come off the ice. I would walk right to my suit pocket. I would take my helmet off, stick, gloves. I wouldn't even touch my jersey or anything. I'd walk right to my suit jacket, pop one. Then I'd, then I'd get undressed. Then I was like, oh, man, there's something going on here that's probably not too normal. This was a part of your professional life, but this is also like you're you're a partier. Like this is this is like yeah, weed weed and booze. Like I just that's normally what I did. Yeah, like nothing. I mean, hard drugs. I don't know what that even means, but yeah, prescription strength <laughs> opiates would qualify, my friend. Yeah, for you sure. Were right? There, whether or not, yeah, whether the doctor, whether or not it's regulated. Not. Yeah, whether or not it's, it's regulated it, by the yeah, it's all yeah, there. For sure. I and mean, and is that yeah. is it was that a unique thing like, or is this just part of the league culture? Like guys are in no, pain, man, so guys are the taking league, the drugs, yeah. and yeah, then yeah. guys are okay. We're getting shot up with cortisol, tortorol. Mm-hmm. You should see the lineup before every game. These are just potent anti-inflammatories that so everybody only get out taken. There, <laughs> yeah, they only like get taken by the regular public three times a year. Oh yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah. It's huh. not everybody. But a I lot shouldn't of say that, but yeah, yep, yeah, a lot of muscle. Re- and listen, this is a very different time again, right? Like, put yourself back in like 2005 to 2011. Like, not mm-hmm. really. Twitter wasn't really going wild. Like, people weren't talking about this stuff. It was very rough, still, right? So and yeah, it's when yeah. the Sacklers had just really introduced uh-huh. oxycodone before oxycontin, and they were doing them back to back, and they had yep. the FDA on their side saying this was not addictive. So and what's, that's what's stuff- amazing now is like the thing that cured my brain and my spirit mm-hmm. and my quality of life is something that, and I've communicated with the FDA in a meeting. Now they're like, oh, okay, well, we need something to help us fix this problem that we exactly. created. Right. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's switch gears and talk about that for a second. I love neuroscience and I'm really bad at it. So I apologize to our listeners who know um, Maya Bialik, who's fucking amazing with this. But your brain, when it's on opiates, is basically loses the ability to create neural pathways and, and, and keep serotonin going in your brain that makes you feel good, serotonin and dopamine. Yeah. You lose the ability to make your own feel-good brain chemicals. Right. And when you take the opiates away, it is a long journey towards re- <sighs> generating literally like if you imagine a tree and you just prune all the branches back so they don't touch anymore that's what you're kind of left with again i'm not a doctor i just have a sister who's one so i pretend and yeah what then you quit doing opiates what happened to your brain and how did you heal it 25 years old i was i remember on my parents couch the first thing i did was i asked for help 
oh. uh, from a, from, and guess who it was? It was the kid that moved in with me mm-hmm. in junior that I protected. Oh. That was, that was four years sober. And I was like, Hey man. And he was lived in Toronto. And I'm like, dude, I'm like, I'm completely hooked. Like, what do I do? Right. Uh, I uh-huh. only had a month left to train. He said, just come, come to some of these meetings. And that was the first time where like, I knew that I had a problem. I broke down and, and I asked, and then I accepted help. And then, um, I, I laid on my parents' couch for nine days and detoxed Oof. and yeah, it was pretty rough. And then I was just reinvigorated, uh, with trying to get healthy again. You know, I ended up signing a contract, uh, at 25 and then, I met a guy, Steve Monitor, came into my life who also showed me how to, hey man, you know, you don't, we don't need this other stuff. Like, let me show you meetings and all this. It was such a savior. Yeah, it was a really amazing time in my life because you mentioned like my last five years mm-hmm. was when I had the most success, when I was treating pe- myself the right way, first and foremost, other mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. I was still hitting and fighting, but it was much different. I was thinking about it. Mm-hmm. what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And that's never a good place to be when you're a fighter. Really? Yeah, no, no, no. You uh, you want to be more reactionary, not okay. like, you know, not guarded. I, uh-huh. Like if you look at my first five years of fights and then you look <laughs> at my last five years, the first one's on my chin is out and I'm punching. The last one's <laughs> I'm back here. <laughs> so, um, you had a so yeah, you it was an interesting dynamic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was... Uh, very interesting. It introduced me to spirituality at 25, all of these amazing different things. And it took a while, though. It took like two or three years for my brain. I don't think it ever fully came back. But around 2013, three years in, I started to be like, oh, like, I feel, I feel pretty good. When you say your, your brain never fully came back, like, what's the part that feels missing, for lack of a better way to, to ask that? Oh, well, I mean, in my career, now I've, I'm the best, highest operating version of myself. I'm cured. We can get into that for sure. But, oh, we're uh, going so to. In, that's, yeah, that's, in that's my, my career, sweet silver lining. Yeah, in my <laughs> career at 25, when I, I was still, you got to remember, still taking a bunch of hits every game. So it's not mm. just the concussions. It's a subconcussive, constant battering. And then... After games, your brain and your body's dehydrated. You try to hydrate as much as you can, but then you're up in the air, you're back down. Uh, There's lingering consequences to everything, like the opiate use, the alcohol, all of these things, right? And nobody addresses and looks at the brain as something to take care of or work out or protect. It's all about the body in Mm -hmm. hockey, right? Where in the sobriety journey here did you become aware that you were probably suffering traumatic brain injuries, and post-concussion syndrome. Yeah, so 2013, I ended up, uh, Steve went to a clinic, and I could just see in his eyes when he came back, uh, uh-huh. and it, it addresses like your autonomic system, a bunch of things, but he was crushing me in workouts. He was talking differently, and he's like, dude, you got to go. He's like, come with me, come on. I'm like, dude, I, you know what I told him? I don't have any traumatic brain injury symptoms, because when you're in it, Mm. This mentality that I am the strongest and there's no weakness and da, da, da. He came back when I saw after two days of working out with him. I'm like, all right, I'm going. So I went to this clinic where they took pictures of your brain, QEG, subjective objective testing. Concussion isn't on the whole brain. It's usually on one or affecting two different regions of the six. And then your symptoms live in these different regions as well. And then they take your heart rate. They take your ocular movements, which eye brain axis is a very strong indicator of brain health. So if you see people with off eyes, it's a pretty good indication that something's going on there. And then your vestibular system, your balance, 
where we feel we are in space. They zoom out from there and then they make you these protocols, identify like my lower right cortex was shut down and with ocular exercises and these other exercises can hit this, this brain system, right? It all sounds great. It sounds it, magic. It costs, well, it costs $10,000 a week. And it's not covered by insurance. Cover. Oh, of course yeah. not. But that was the first instance and they didn't tell me then, but they told me after I retired that I was by far the worst TBI case they'd ever seen. So wait, hang on a second. I just want to read a stat here. 80% of TBIs, traumatic brain injuries, cannot be seen on MRI or CAT scan. 80%, 8-0. Unless you have a brain bleed, yeah. I mean, right. I, would, I would say so, that number's even less. So are they really, they're, they're diagnosing you primarily on the way that you're reacting to these sets of tests. These, these Yeah, and they're not even necessarily diagnosing you. They're just like, they're looking at people with like early onset dementia, um, ALS, mm-hmm. MS, mm-hmm. balance issues, concussion is one of them. And they're trying to just give you a pretty predictive picture. Uh, and then the, they're trying to address that region of the brain, right? Um, and wake it back up. Now, what was amazing at, in 2013, I learned about this. So I was like, okay, well, that was cool. But I mean, it was like, there's a clinic. It made me feel good for two weeks. And then I was out there hitting guys again. So it didn't really, <laughs> you know, but it was when um, Steve retired uh, after, like when I made the decision to, to stop hockey, it was because my son was born in 2014, beginning of the, my last season. And then Steve passed away in February. So Steve, in 2013, when we won the cup with Chicago, after we went to that clinic and it was the lockout year, he experienced four concussions in 12 weeks. Okay. What? Oh, yeah. It was his 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th concussion. Now, Mm. think about this. This is a billion-dollar lead that shares medical records, and these medical professionals are clearing him for forget about just the four concussions in 12 weeks like the amount of concussions is is crazy and that's why we don't have like very specific parameters because liability that's been created like with the nfl nhl you you can't and it's just really hard to tell somebody hey man you've Mm -hmm. had 10 you should probably stop done but when he retired he had mild dementia um and it it accelerated very quickly and i saw the same symptoms in myself and I was just like, man, I should really, now that I have my son and I, I, I really need to think about stopping. And then I had my seventh concussion and won my second Stanley Cup. And that's when I made the decision to, uh, to stop. And then that's when, <laughs> that's that's when, when the real fight started happening. Yeah. So how yeah. much more like career do you think you left on the table in doing that? I could still be playing easily. Really? And so that would be like several uh-huh. years. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you yeah. just I was only 30 was, years old. Oh shit. Yeah. What about and when Steve Steve passed away, my research indicates they, they still don't know why exactly he died. No, I do. But um yeah, so he he was 34 and mm. uh he had stage two or three CT. So that's essentially so CT is a neurodegenerative disease, very similar to dementia, Parkinson's. There are tau proteins, and they essentially just strangle uh, your brain until you know you, you have tough times communicating, remembering. It depends on where it lives, primarily. Yeah, he went down very quickly. He was trying to. He knew he knew that this was happening to him. 
yeah, he unfortunately passed away at his house in, in Mississauga after a pretty long journey, like a year and a half, two years of like, you know, trying to figure it out. He was on the path. He was, he was trying to do these psychedelic treatments and, and trying to get his brain, flush out the inflammation and get it back online. Because the key, which I'm sure you know, Julie, is neuroplasticity, is stimulating these brain regions, no matter how you do that. So you could go to the clinic and do the neurofeedback uh-huh. or- $10,000 a week. $10,000 yeah, a week. Can, <laughs> or you can go, and I'm not advocating for anybody to to do this the way that I did. In my experience, you can take $3 worth of mushrooms and, and get your life back in six months. Why are you not advocating for, I'm just out of curiosity. Like you're so, I don't know, like you, you stand for what you stand for. Like you're like, yeah. I think this is the way I stand for this. Why yeah. are you not advocating for that? Well, I'm just not advocating that somebody go and, and take a schedule one drug without right. understanding like where you get it from, et cetera. But Trust me, man. That's all I do is I am an advocate, right? Like, so I just speak from my experience. And if people want to like contact me and then I can put them in touch with, with responsible, right? Responsible, with responsible right. retreats. You're just saying, and, don't yeah. just like go grab some bullshit over. over no, there. man. Yeah. No, there's yeah. so much that gotcha. you need to do with like set, setting, set dosage, setting. preparation. Yep. yep. Yeah. And so you found out, I'm just, I'm backing up a little bit because the, the quit is the thing that's always so, means so much to me, like that deciding yeah. line. Steve had had 12 concussions in four months or something like that, you said? He got cleared for four concussions in 12 months. In 12 weeks. months, okay. In 12 so weeks. basically, 12 weeks. Yeah. yeah. And you had had, you said you had had seven. Well, that's seven yep. diagnosed events. Right. And who right. knows how many sub-events and yep. sort of that are happening underneath. So what is that moment was that makes you go into, because in 2014, 15 was your last season, correct? Yep. What is that moment when you go, and that's it? It's when Steve died yeah. in February. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just, uh, I remember going out for warm up and just about to get my skates on, I went to grab a coffee and my phone was buzzing, buzzing. Usually I walk by, but it just kept buzzing and buzzing and buzzing. I'm like, fuck, something's wrong. And then my friend uh, told me, you know, uh, she was crying hysterically. And I just, I kind of, I was like, okay, what, I, um, I don't know if this is like fully true. Are you sure? And then I was just like, well, <laughs> this is just so fucked up the way your mentality is like, well, I can't deal with that right now because mm-hmm. I have a hockey game to play. <laughs> so, and I remember like reaching down, trying to tie my skates, crying. And John, like Taves is like, man, what's up? You know, and it was kind of starting to go around now, the whispers in the. I just said, you know, like, I think, I think Steve's gone and, you know, he consoled me and then we went back out. I, like the last thing you want to be is a distraction. So this goes back to like what I was telling you guys before too, right? In a hockey yeah. team, you don't want to be a distraction at all. So then we went out for warm up, and then I saw, I spotted one of his jerseys in the thing and I was just like, fuck, it broke down, bawling my eyes out. And I'm like, fuck this. You know, like, fuck you, hockey. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm so fucking done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you still had a not, rest of the season to play. Uh-huh. Yeah, but I walked into the coach's office, like, down the tunnel, and uh, I told him I'm done. That you know, day. This is I'm, just a, a curiosity for me. Like, wow. What does that cost you financially to make that decision? Like, I'm, I'm sure you... Nothing. It costs you nothing. Nothing. No, because I have a guaranteed contract. And just to be very honest, like, better players than me. It was the end of the season. I was uh-huh. playing just to play. We were already in the playoffs. And I was just like, man, like, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, I'm fucking done. I can't. And, and he knew, like, how close me and Steve were for the last six years. And, and he just hugged me, cried with me, and 
said that he would, that that's okay. Like that's your decision. And then, um, you know, there's always a but, yeah. <laughs> but they still put me in one game. Right. And I was like, so fucking mad that they did. I was still so angry and frustrated and sad. It was only like less than a month later. It's like, fuck it. I'm going to go get a fight and I want to be punched in the face. And I want to feel something other than mm. this fucking emotional pain, you know? Whoa. So, wow. And then I got my seventh you? concussion. Oh. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I got my seventh concussion. And then, um, I couldn't look at my phone for three weeks. I, um, I don't think I went to the rink for five or six weeks because, you know, the protocol is don't come here unless you're symptom free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks guys. But I did make a decision like when they asked me to come back to like be the best teammate I could. One of the things that I always did was like I made, I made all the playlists. I played the music. I, I did the things necessary that the, that the superstars didn't have to worry about. That I was going to create an environment in the room. And even when I came in for practice and talk about the restaurants I went to, the concert I went to. Because these guys can't do it. Because if they get caught in a picture and I could get in mm-hmm. trouble too, but I just didn't give a fuck about that. <laughs> I wanted to live life, you know? So I, I did the things that, you know, I essentially was the the DJ for the 2015 run. I just tried to be the best teammate I could, you know? So yeah. you left, you, you left a career, you left NHL hockey. Cause I mean, you've been focusing on since you could walk. Yeah. Since you could skate at age three. And then you make this major turn. Cause you know that you have, You've got traumatic brain injuries. You know that, yeah. and, and CTE, you cannot diagnose until somebody has died. But you can diagnose brain bleeds. But like I said before, 80% yeah. of these or more go fully undiagnosed and you're just looking for symptoms. Symptomology, yeah. And it's, yeah, there's no way to fully diagnose. I guarantee you I have CTE, absolutely. Absolutely. But I've done the things necessary and taken the steps and continue and will continue to for the rest of my life to to guard against that full onslaught. I believe, you know, you catch anything early enough uh, with the right regimen and with the right diet and sleep and medicine, you can you can reverse it uh, or at least prevent it from progressing. Can you talk to us about that, what you've done and what you're with the yeah. company you're involved with? Yeah. I mean, so like, I guess. When I, uh, at the end of that season, we won the cup and like, I just, I started doing things that weren't normal. I, uh, I just started isolating. I didn't go to like the banner raising. I didn't go to the Mumford and Sons concert. I'm a huge what? music guy. You didn't yeah. go to Mumford and Sons. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, they brought the cup on the stage. Like in 2013, I brought it out with Rush, you know, and, uh, like Neil Peart was drumming on the back. It was, it was sick. And everyone I was so young. They're like, who's Rush? I'm like, oh, I'll yeah, take that. I know. I'm a classic guy. Yeah. <laughs> I started doing things that were really off to me. And they scared me, to be quite honest. Like, I didn't want anything to do with my son. And oh. I was like, man, he's wow. a newborn. And I'm like, all I ever wanted to be was a dad. And so, and then I was just, I was dealing with slurred speech, headaches, mm. head pressure, insomnia, appetite loss, weight loss, memory issues, uh, on top of like anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation and a bunch of things that came at me really quick. And then I had no purpose because <laughs> I thought, well, I'm just a dumb jock and a hockey player. And so like, I need to open up a rink or I need to do this. But I had so much anger and frustration with hockey and I was really conflicted. But I've spent the last eight years trying to like be as honest as I can about the things that I struggle with 
the first five were dedicated to doing the different treatments that we went through and then talking about them and then also doing like float tanks and hyperbaric chamber and moxa acupuncture and cranial mm. sacral. And I mean, anything that you could imagine, I was pretty much a guinea pig for, for the first five years, but it didn't get me to the place that I needed to be. My scans in my brain were still really bad. My blood was off. So I got really dark three years ago where I started to make plans to unburden my family and my kids. Like Mm -hmm. with a TBI survivor, you know, the number one cause of death is suicide. I believe Mm -hmm. there's little to no education awareness and then there's just no treatments. And uh, luckily Mm -hmm. I accepted an invitation to a farm in um in denver in a decriminalized city where you know psilocybin you couldn't get in trouble for it so it's the active ingredient in magic mushrooms and they said like hey man we know you're struggling and we want to help you i'm like okay so i I went there and I, i did a huge ceremony and then before i went there i started to look at some of the research that was mm-hmm. that's been done and it's designated fda breakthrough therapy designation for two different companies already Uh, Mm -hmm. So we know that it works. I woke up the next day, like after the ceremony and I had like less brain fog. I had a little bit of energy and I'm like, right away, my slurred speech went away. All I wanted to do is get back to my kids and my wife where I was like isolating for probably a good year and a half, almost two years. We're just full isolation emotionally anyway. And then my light sensitivity wasn't there on the third day on the farm. I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute, what is what is going on here? So then I started to really delve into it. I knew nothing gets fixed in five hours. So with a PhD biochemist, I made a regimen of subperceptual non-hallucinogenic doses and then CBD, you know, which is a neuroprotectant. And then six months later uh, of doing a very specific regimen, fixing my diet and only focusing on food and sleep and this medicine, I got my brain scans back with no abnormalities. Wow. So six months in. Yeah. And my blood work came back the same. I'm like, like I, I just spent like $30, <laughs> you know, uh, what is, what is going on? Then I really, throughout this time, I was obviously researching. I was like, wow, a light just kind of went off. This could definitely be the first FDA approved medication for TBI survivors and TBI yeah. symptoms. Can you explain the importance? It's a little bit of a, a trick question, just because I've, I've heard you talk before about that three days on the farm was not a party. You were not no, wearing tie-dyes no. and spinning in circles and talking to fairies. It was rough. You know, you know what's hilarious is like I tell people this too. I'm like, I, I when I went there and they're like, I was there and they're like, okay, we're going to do this, this ceremony for you. And I'm like, great. Like, let me go grab some smokes. I'll grab the beers. <laughs> and, <laughs> and this PhD is like, dude, no, no, no. There's no smokes. There's no beers. Uh, in fact, you're going to start fasting right now. We'll break it with fruit. And I'm like, all right, well. And and then they just kind of prepared me. They they knew pretty much. They were very familiar with the trauma that I'd been going through. And then, yeah, they just helped prepare. Like, so set, setting, dosage. Uh-huh. Set is your set intention. And mine mm-hmm. was very simple. Like, I want to understand my suicidal ideation. And I want uh-huh. I want my brain back. Those are the only two things I, I went in with. And then the, the setting was amazing. Like it was 432 hertz music in a in a confined oh, type of kind yeah. of room, and and it was yeah, it was like a mental type of bath where you uh, they created this setting where I was I felt comfortable to surrender to the medicine mm-hmm. and let it show me what it needed to show me about my trauma, and and then the dosage was 
large. It was 5.6 grams. So Whoa, for one journey. Mm-hmm. What is yeah. that? Can you contextualize that for somebody who it's doesn't really know the lot. measurements? It's, it was all of my college together. <laughs> <laughs> so when Plus people a go to a, my adulthood, when people go to a concert, they're usually taking like a stem and a cap, which is yeah, it's a, it's like a half gram. a gram. Oh, half yeah, gram. or one gram, just depending on you know one gram. You're starting to teeter. If you get some pretty strong psilocybin, you're you know. Uh, Mm -hmm. You better be able to know how to hold, handle yourself. Mm -hmm. But essentially, just think of it like this. If you take anything less than like, call it two grams, you can pretty much shut it off. Like you can change the setting if it's not going the way you want it to Mm -hmm. and and just stop it, right? Mm -hmm. Five grams, anything above three, three and a half, you cannot. And you take that for a very specific reason because you want this medicine to show you your trauma, for example, right? So- I, I describe it like this. If you have like a sexual abuse survivor, which I am, and, and you want to understand that or at least confront that trauma, instead of, you know, pulling these survivors out of the bottom of the river, you can go to the top, meet the trauma. You'll have a difficult couple hours reconciling it. But then when you come out of the ceremony, you just feel better. And when you think about that trauma again or revisit it, obviously you're doing psychotherapy after this you have less of an emotional response to it. So then you need maybe no drugs or maybe less of the drugs to numb out the trauma that's causing the addiction. So like these psychedelic medicines can be used in a responsible way as tools to move past trauma in a pretty quick manner. And we haven't even talked about what it does for the brain. Well, that's what Um, I was going to say. What is your understanding of how it's like, going back to my really horrible analogy of these like trimmed back sort of stumpy yeah. bushes that don't have all that rich growth. What does uh, this kind of plant medicine do for your for your actual synapses? Yeah, so what I would say for everybody, there was a study done in 2014 by Robin Card Harris where they put a, um, a person with no psilocybin under fMRI and then somebody with psilocybin. And what you see is the right and left brain hemispheres communicating at a rate that, quite frankly, has never been seen before. That's the first study that I saw with depression, with anxiety, with TBI. There's neuronal death associated. There's specific parts of the brain that are not communicating correctly, right? And so what do we have to do? We have to wake these parts of the brain up, right? And get them back working again. And so I saw all these lines. I was like, wow, you always, I always heard in the clinics, neuroplasticity, mm-hmm. stimulation. I'm like, well, here it is. And on top of that, this is a, one of the most potent anti-inflammatories and antioxidants found in nature. So it fits right into the 5-HT2A receptor. So it's your serotonin system. Mm-hmm. Activating your serotonin system can help regulate your nervous system, right? And a lot of the things that concussion survivors deal with are, are, are nervous system problems off. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. why these clinics go through all these diagnostics to try to figure mm-hmm. out what the heck is going on. So I just saw this and I'm like, wow, here it is. Like, here is a way to use a medicine that has little to no abuse liability and that you cannot die from in the sense that you can't take enough. The LD50 for psilocybin is 1,546 grams. Oh my God. What does that mean? Can you, what does that mean? That's like an entire, you'd have to have like a bushel. The LD50. You can't get that amount of matter down. <laughs> LD50. So lethal, lethal dose. Basically, what could kill you is like taking the psilocybin and maybe freaking out and not being in the right setting and, and, right, and driving know, God forbid, or something. running. Yeah. 
but you can't actually die from the drug, hmm. right? Uh, from an overdose of the drug, uh, unless you take 1,546 grams, but which is man, crazy. Be... So I saw all of this and then I saw the FDA, like, you know, pretty much designating a breakthrough therapy designation. And so like, I just started to meet some people or people started to come into my life that I knew. And I started showing them the science. These are like hardened conservative mm-hmm. type of white male doctors <laughs> where it's like, what is this again? But what I wouldn't, I wouldn't lead with the stigma. I wouldn't say psychedelics. Right. I, like I try to stay away from it. I try to, I, I try to say like, there's a compound out there that could wake up the right and left brain hemispheres, help with the neuroinflammation associated with some of these symptoms, regulate the nervous system. Are you interested in like looking at something like that for your patients? And they'd be like, absolutely. Like, what is this miracle drug? And you're right. like, magic mushrooms. Magic mushrooms. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then they're like, Ugh. but then you show them the FDA feedback and they believe in it. So. Yeah. So obviously, what, do you, and I what are the steps it, you know? then for for you for the for the company that you're you've developed to basically bring the this kind of plant compound into the mainstream yeah. for traumatic yeah. brain injury and depression, all these other things? Is is it a matter of I'll tell you, I, I used to be super against anything that wasn't, you know, that my doctor had not prescribed. And I right. couldn't sleep at night. And my therapist said to me, I never sleep. I'm a terrible sleeper and it's bad for you. I said, I need Ambien. She goes, no, you actually need marijuana. And Uh I said, no, I don't. I don't do that. I don't like marijuana. That is not my thing. I don't do that. And she said, well, what if I wrote you a prescription for Marinol, which is Ah. synthetic marijuana? I said, oh, well, Hmm. I would take that. So you are so heavily stigmatized. I would, exactly. And we had a lot, thank God I got a great therapist and we talked a lot about like, what on earth does that piece of paper mean to you? And, you know, what does it mean to all of us? So is part of this process making psilocybin something that can be actually prescribed? Exactly. So you go through rigorous scientific validation with the FDA Mm -hmm. and you prove that it's efficacious so that it works for Mm -hmm. a symptom. You can only do one at a time. And then you essentially, if you're a TBI survivor, you can go to your doctor uh-huh. They can they can you know diagnose you with uh-huh. a concussion or a TBI or a related symptom of that, and then mm-hmm. they can write you a script. Mm-hmm. You can take that script to Walgreens and you can mm-hmm. pick this up. Yeah, um, but they that's can't on the low control dose. set and setting. No, so that's on. So there's there's also intricacies here. So what I'm on, like for example, I'm on a microdose today. Right. That's subperceptual, non hallucinogenic. Right. So you can prove that out in your clinical trials that this can be taken at home, uh-huh. similar to an SSRI or an antidepressant, right? Right. And the reason I'm very passionate about that is because, number one, in the healthcare system, there's nowhere on earth that this would exist where there's clinics that you can go to, give up eight hours of your day, prepare with a, with right. a therapist, uh, sit with that therapist for uh-huh. eight hours. Right. And then go home. All right. And then try to understand. So, and there's only 300,000 therapists in North America right now. There's rate limiting steps to just doing high dose psychedelics. But we believe strongly, and I believe strongly, I've done the microdose and the CBD combination more than I've done the big doses. So I know that there's merit to the microdose and it just fits into the healthcare system. So think of it two two different ways, right? You can load the system or prime uh-huh. the system like I did, uh, or you could just take the microdose. Now, how many people are going to be like, so, well, I have depression. Okay, well, my prescription for you is 
go to the psychedelic clinic, hallucinate for eight hours, mm-hmm. and then you know you'll be okay for three or four months. But there's again, there's no silver bullet for any of this. Right. So right. The, our program is priming the system, and then keeping it primed by uh, this constant interaction with your serotonin receptors and your endocannabinoid system. What are the risks? Like, who is this not for? Yeah, that's a really good question, man. Um, we're, we're figuring that out as an industry, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of people that say, like, don't give this to people suffering from schizophrenia. Don't, don't give this to people with bipolar. But they don't know. They just, they don't. So we're, we're figuring it out. And it, you got to be really careful to not position this as a cure-all. The way that I position it is we have an endocannabinoid system that cannabinoids fit into. If you don't take a cannabinoid that's derived from a cannabis plant, THC, CBD, CBG, you never activate this system. This system works well with with what psilocybin does in regulating the nervous system. So we've evolved with cannabis as human beings, for sure, right? And then the 5-HT2A is your serotonin receptor. Psilocybin is just a, a lock and key. It, it fits right into that receptor, right? Mm-hmm. So we've evolved with that most likely as well. And so you have these two things that are helping millions of people, millions and millions across the world have already admitted to using psychedelic medicine. And unfortunately, you have a drug system with the FDA that we've gone into the lab and we've tried to formulate and play with compounds that could maybe hit certain receptors in your brain, but uh-huh. they're also shutting down um, other things right. that we naturally create. So these are two natural things that we know that work, that we are uh, trying to develop and, and get them to, to live on, on people's counter. And they don't come with the same abuse liability, uh, and they don't come with the same suicidal mm. ideation that and, and a, a multitude of other symptoms that, that these other drugs bring. So when you were, just to bring it a little bit full circle, because we started with, you talking about opiates and being on mm-hmm. them. And then you said that you've had the opportunity to actually meet with people in the FDA who are talking about trying to find sort of something that can repair the damage done. Have you right. been able to, to show causality and, and, and prove that, that plant medicine can help cure some of the damage done by opiate abuse? Not specific to opiate abuse. And no, not yet. Uh, I'm, I'm just a living example that of somebody mm-hmm. that was suffering from mild dementia and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm by far uh, cured. And I have obviously data in my blood work, my QEGs that I continue to collect every six months. Because my hope is that, so the FDA is um, a funny, uh, it's a funny game. And the, the, the game, I mean, is that they have endpoints already that are well-established. If you try to go in and say that I've cured my TBI and I can't even study TBI, Julie, because you, so that's why I have to go after the symptoms of mm-hmm. TBI. Mm-hmm. So, but eventually maybe we could use a QEG to go after, hey, this brain pathology is, is cured and it's working, right? Like one of the things that I'm really interested in is diagnostics. So like QEG with the gut microbiome. Right, uh, right. With, and I'm in my mother-in-law's place. Do you guys hear that landline? Can you Hi, believe Mom. this is a landline? Right? <laughs> Hi, Bob, Chuck. Uh, so, <laughs> and then we could start getting down to the underlying pathology of like, hi, it's like right. this person is, 
is essentially cured. It's very, very interesting, but I can't go, I can't go after that. We right. just have to use like the Madras scale and, and what's pretty clinically defined now. Yeah. You touched on it just at the bookend of your career, walking out and sort of lacking purpose is how you put it. Um, mm-hmm. You're just kind of walking into the abyss here. And just to, <laughs> to, to tie it back into really like the theme of this show, which is meant to speak to anybody who quits anything and walks out yeah. into that abyss. But like you hear about all the time with pro athletes, you st- you walk out of the office one day, you walk out of the gym or the arena or whatever. And mm-hmm. like, you're not, you're not used to life as a civilian, so to speak. Like wh- what did you see in front of you at that point in time? Like, did you have a vision for what your life would be? I was just trying to be like a good dad, you know? And I was like failing at that because I was sleeping in till 3 p.m. Oh. I wasn't mm-hmm. going to bed till 4 a.m. I mm-hmm. was just, just, the insomnia was crazy. And I had a lot of impulse control issues. There was a lot of anger. There was like, I, I mean, what I was looking at was almost a dead end where it was like, all right, how do I prolong this where I can be like as happy as possible until I die at an early age. You know, like mm-hmm. I was completely broken spiritually, mentally, physically, and uh, with no purpose. That was, that's why I went into like owning a studio rink and I went into like teaching kids. Like I love being around kids mm-hmm. and the young energy and the innocence. And I said, so I did a gym after that, but then I was also like, wait a minute, like these kids are like really good. I'm training them to get into a league that mm-hmm. doesn't admit a link still to this day between repetitive head trauma and neurodegenerative disease. And I will say nobody ever in this world that has died of CT has ever not had a history of getting hit in the head repetitively. Mm. So what is, you know, and I was just, I couldn't reconcile with it. So that's when I stopped. And uh, luckily you know, my injuries and what I've been through in the past, all of the abuse, physical, emotional, has set me up for today to be the hopefully the best advocate that I can be and to be an example to show people that this got really dark and really bad really quick. And for a very long time, I looked for something for almost five and a half years of battling. And just, I guess that's the theme is just battle. You know, like Uh there are so many things out there. Keep trying, try and ask for help and then accept help. And if you don't know what you want to do next, the best thing that you can do is try to just stay in the present moment as best possible. And I feel like the answers, they will come to you or they'll they'll present themselves. And are your friends like who are still playing, are they hearing you? Like, do they know that this is around a corner mm. for them when mm-hmm. their life turns the page? <laughs> or like, are they tuning you out? Are they mad at yeah, you? Yeah, do they think like, Carcillo's lost How are they taking it. this? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm sure a bunch of them do for sure. But that's just out of their own fear and ignorance of not looking. I went through it too, trust yeah. me, right? Yeah. Like I was like, man, with Steve, like, so one of the things that still kills me to this day, and his dad keeps telling me not to worry about that. I've got a lot of guilt for it was really hard for me to like talk to him and hear how badly he was suffering in the end yeah Mm. because i mean it scared the shit out of me because i was like fuck this is you know and uh so i i probably could have been a better friend although i was trying to be the best person i could at the time 
But I didn't want to look at it. I would not look at it. Just like how I was in 2013, they told me I was the worst TBI case I'd ever seen. I wouldn't look at it. I wasn't looking at symptoms. I'm like, what do you mean? I got no symptoms. Mm-hmm. Right. But now, and I like I told my wife this, right? Like, because a bunch of the wives reach out to her and she does her best to talk to because you get into retirement and they're like, who the hell is this person? <laughs> right. right. And, and these guys are dealing with a lot on top of the physical injuries. And then I'm here. I just tell everybody, if we've had differences in the public eye or you didn't agree with, that's fine. I'm here. When you're ready, they know I'm here. They know that I can help direct them in the right right path. But like my sponsor said a long time ago, sometimes you need to do more research, right? Like if you don't think you're an alcoholic, then got to go do some some (laughs) controlled drinking. So did you read, were you, did you have an opportunity to read the uh, book by uh, Michael Pollan, the How to Change Your Mind? Yeah. Fan, one of my all-time favorite. He what talked a blessing to, to have somebody like him come in to amazing. write about it, right? It's because so that clearly, helps break the stigma down. Exactly. Yeah. This nice suburban dad who does not, is not <laughs> looking to get fucked up on the weekends, like at all. He's right? terrified of it. Right. And he, and he uses himself as a skinny pig. But one of the most fascinating parts of that book, I thought, was his in, his investigative look into the history of sobriety and Bill Wilson. And one of the things that Bill Wilson was not allowed to bring into AA was that his spiritual experience was originally LSD. Uh, a, psychedel- a psychedelic experience. Uh-huh. And all the more power to people who are able to find a higher power in a spiritual experience without it. But it did blow my mind when I read that, knowing as I know a ton of people in, in 12-step programs yeah. and in sobriety, and I'm, I'm all for it. I just always felt like, wow, that is a really important piece of this puzzle, sort of surrendering and he got there, not the easy way, but to get there without any sort of a blast <laughs> from the sky, yeah, that's hard. Yeah. That's really that's hard. The, that's the, I think, the common misnomer, right? It's like, well, this is going to cure everything. And this is like, it's really easy. We're just going to prepare you and, and a set and a setting. And you're going to sit with mm-hmm. the therapist and you're going to take this. And it's going to be amazing. And mm. it's going to be wonderful. I'm, I'm here to tell you, like, if you have addiction like I did, and and you want to face your trauma, mm-hmm. it's going to be hard. Like uh, a lot of these psychedelics, they they force you to look in the first two hours. But once you do that, the last two hours of my experience was amazing. And I've done ayahuasca. I've done uh, in Peru. I've done you know ketamine. I've done probably fifty ceremonies on myself, psilocybin. Uh, I've done five meo. Like I've I've tested. You know, a lot of these medicines over the last. Is that the toad Uh one? Okay. Yeah. And what they all have a common theme. They make you suffer in the end or in the front and show you what's wrong. And then they make you feel, I describe it as uh, unconditional love. So I describe it as when I pick up my kids and I hug them, like my daughters and my, my boy. And it's like gleaming, you know, like, ah, like I've felt that in these ceremonies. And it's the same thing. And I feel like we just lose it because there's stress, there's jobs, there's obviously t- we, there's life that mm-hmm. happens. And I feel like if you can look at the things that are bothering you and recognize them, then I think you can live a happier, more fulfilling life. And it's not done. Like, can always keep peeling back the onion and there's going to be things where you're going to get wronged or feel lied to or and you can always use these as tools i use it as a tool it's one tool so it's not we you know we're talking about this one thing right now but 
it's one tool that I pick up when I'm having problems and I can't figure it out on my own. Then I just need a little help. It's almost like opening a pathway, yep. you know, it's to a higher power, but also to yourself. And I don't want to get too spiritual, but like, I mean, you can have children, you know, like, and I was like half of, of giving my wife children, you know? And so like, that's like really, it's really powerful, you know? And I think a lot of these things have made me realize how powerful I really am. I'm not a victim, you know? I'm like, I'm a very special person. I would never be able to say that about myself, you know, five years ago. Uh, You seem to be able to stomach whatever it is that people have to say about you, however they characterize. Were you always like that? Or is this you after having gone through such a like, (laughs) Tough. No, I'm a no, I'm a sensitive person. I mean, I guess well, maybe I was always like that. Like one thing that I just don't give a fuck what people think. I mean, I think True, that's, like truly you, know, you don't. No. <laughs> Chad. Yeah. Chad, this is our this is our th- he is our spiritual guide. This is what <laughs> um, we talk about this all the time. And, and you've our always dream been is like to that, not give saying. a fuck. I don't know if I've always been like that because I was like in hockey, like you're very insecure about pretty much everything, right? You come off the ice, did I make that play? I could have made that. You're always questioning yourself. But yeah, lately, like the last three years, four years, like I've done a lot of work on myself as far as like, okay, the things that I'm saying now, what are these people going to do? What's that person? You know, that's the things that I say now, they just need to be said and whoever hears it needs to hear it and whoever doesn't like it. I mean, shit, I don't, that's not on me. You know, that's, that's on you. How old are your kids? Austin, Austin Wolf is seven. Layla is uh, five and uh-huh. then Scarlett's three. It's probably hard to imagine. I now, I mean, I feel like it was two minutes ago. I had three kids as well, little babies. And now they're 15, 13 and 13, all boys. We've had some really frank discussions. They've listened to the podcast. They've heard about some of the stuff that that I've gone through and done and the conversations I've had with Chad and our guests. What is the conversation that you think you're going to be having with Austin when he's like, you're a normal, a perfectly normal, well-adjusted 15-year-old who wants to crush beer cans into his head and get into fights and then is like, oh, sorry, dad. Dude, you're right. I should be smoking more weed and tripping out on acid. Like, (laughs) <laughs> what is, how do you have that conversation with your, how do you see that conversation happening? Or does that conversation start way earlier? Yeah, it starts now. Like what's hilarious is my, like Scarlett and Layla, like, oh, there's a mushroom. Daddy, that's your medicine, right? So like, I always frame it. <laughs> oh my God, I didn't see but that it's, coming. But it's medicine, right? right? Like, so I've always said to them, this isn't weed. Right. These aren't shrooms. Right. Words are really important. Yeah. Especially when it's so stigmatized. Right. This is my medicine. Right. This is this is what they remember, even from a young age. Wolfie too, right? Like, right. this is what got daddy better. Better. So if you want to use it as a medicine, mm. great. But don't disrespect it as like a party. I'm not, I'm not hard up on, you can use these as a good time too. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. right. Like you can go to a concert and, and take like a half. I, I'm cool with that. Right? right. But with my kids. Yeah, it's medicine. And hopefully, hopefully you don't need it. I just want to say this has been better than I could have even imagined. I love that you're sharing this with the world. It means a lot coming out of your mouth and your trauma and, and your the damage that was done to you to hear that it's going to change a lot of people's lives and hearing about how you quit the way you thought about a sport mm. that I'm sure you still love the sport. 
you don't love the organization yeah, yeah. around it. The sport's amazing. I quit things every day, you know, because my brain too, it's not like it's a, uh, you know, I would say like a normal brain in the sense that, you know, I was always growing up negatively talking to myself to motivate me. Yeah. So like there's, you know, I don't want to be the same person today, tomorrow. Right. Right. Like, so I, I just, I, I kind of want to, I always want to get better. I'm quitting every day, you know? I love they say it. nobody likes a quitter. I don't know about that. No, that's not true. That. Quitting, that's the whole point though. Chad, this is Chad's idea. And I always, I'm, I'm always talking so much, but Chad's usually thinking in much deeper thoughts. But the idea that you quit things that to make room for the shit that makes you better and stronger. It's not about yep. giving up. Like, it's not about not having tenacity. It's not about not having stick to It's about getting rid of the shit that is really standing in your way and lots of Weighing old ways down, of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And I got to credit, credit Chad with that all the way. Nice, man. Yeah, you seem like a you seem like a deep thinker. I'm sure that we can we can go deeper, Chad, for sure. <laughs> Next know? time you come on, we will. I, what I've been thinking about is that uh, has anybody ever told you you look like Tony Romo a little bit? Have you ever gotten no. that before? No, 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 not really. no. It's when you smile. I don't know. It's like in your. I don't know. But I really. That's a compliment. Seen- I mean, I could reach out to Skechers. Be like, hey, you know, you guys need it's, make uh, some skates. Uh huh. <laughs> no, I really appreciate you. Coming in, you're, I mean, you are like a neuroscientist, man. Like you're like a, you're doing a lot. You've lived a lot of life and I appreciate you sharing it with us. I really do. Thanks, man. Appreciate those kind words. Anything we can do to get the word out about traumatic brain injury, telling truth to power, man. Yeah. Yeah. That is just across the board. Sports, school, business. Our our whole world needs more of that. And I really thank you for it. So thank you for being with us. Thanks thanks for coming to quit with us. Of course. Yeah, thank you, Julie. Thank you. We'll we'll talk soon, I'm sure. Cool. Thank you. I hope so. Yep, for sure. 